Good morning. If you've got a Bible, go to James chapter 5. We'll be studying verse 12 to 20. We're going to finish up the book of James today. And uh, just by way of letting you know for next week, we're going to begin studying through the book of Esther starting next week, and that will take us up to Advent. Um, And we're going to, in the book of Esther, learn about this great woman of God and the providence of God and how God works in the world. So I'm really excited about that. We'll start that next week. But today we're going to finish up the book of James, James chapter 5, verse 12 to 20. And I want to give you a caveat to those of you who've been around Three Rivers. Oh, notes are available for you for your Radical Life groups and for your personal study. They're at the blog, mitchjolly.com or theologyinthedirt.com. Either one of those can get you where you need to go. So everything I have in front of me, you have available to you to help you in your study as well. I do want to put this caveat on this sermon. It's probably going to be long. Uh, Most of my sermons are are long. Um, Partly because my conscience says don't cheat people. And there's so much to Bible study that's worth digging into. And I do not want to cheat you out of God's word. Number two, um, verse 12 to 20 is disguised today as three points when in fact it's really three sermons. Um, Verse 12 is a sermon, Uh, verse 13 to 18 is a sermon, and verse 19 and 20 is a sermon if we did them justice. And I'm going to do my best to do them justice in the next two hours. (laughs) Just kidding. Probably more like 50 minutes, but hey. Uh, If I were going to put a title on this, and I'm I'm wordy, I should have been born in the 1600s. I have titles and subtitles. I'm just verbose. That's the way God wired me. Um, Right use of speech. In healing the effects of sin. Right use of speech in healing the effects of sin. If we're going to boil this section down into one big idea, it would be this. Above all, we are to use our speech for truthfulness, for living lives of worship, and for spiritual recovery. Big idea. Above all, we should use our speech for truthfulness, living lives of worship, and spiritual recovery. Proverbs 18.21 says this most amazing thing. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We are the only creatures on the planet made in the image of God. Human beings are co-regents with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in restraining created order and bringing life and prosperity and help and good things to created order. One of the ways we do that is in our speech. God gave Adam the power to name. There is authority and power in naming things. Therefore, the writer of Proverbs says, Death and life are in the power of tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Human speech carries extraordinary power, which is one of the reasons God ordained preaching as a means of transformation. So that when we preach God's Word, God does supernatural work through the preaching of His supernatural Word, through the power of words. Human speech carries extraordinary power. God's Word is powerful to corral the effects of the curse of sin and help us grow up into life-giving speech. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul states his purpose to the church of Colossae, and I think his purpose overall in his work among the churches, and that is him, whose him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
Part of our task in preaching through God's Word is so that we grow up in maturity and learn to live as mature disciples of Jesus, particularly related to the correct use of human speech. Because in it, there is life or death. Every conversation we have is either giving life or it's taking life. You stew on that for a minute. Every conversation we have is either taking life or it's giving life. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Paul taught about in 1 and 2 Timothy this guy named Alexander. In 1 Timothy he mentions Alexander along with Hymenaeus, both of whom he says they have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. In their words, they were speaking things contrary to the gospel, contrary to life, and they've been handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme because their words were destroying. And this Alexander is likely the same Alexander in 2 Timothy. If it's not the same Alexander, Paul had trouble with Alexander's. Because back-to-back books, he speaks about Alexander, and he tells Timothy to avoid him because he did him a lot of harm. So it was to Timothy, Timothy's advantage to avoid Alexander because Alexander with his words and even his actions had done destruction. Why? Because he was either giving life or taking life. James has taught clearly about the destructive nature of the tongue, human speech. And he's going to close out his epistle with instructions on some beautifully right uses for human speech that will do good and bring life. So he's going to end it on this beautifully positive note of how we can bring life. In fact, verse 12 to 20 is nothing but application. So I'm not going to have a section where we do a bunch of applications apart from the exposition of the passage because this is all application. So he's going to begin the section by saying, we're going to read it in just a moment. In just a moment. He says, above all, he, he puts those words right at the beginning of verse 12, above all, when introducing these beautifully right uses of human speech that should give life, we should take this to mean that in light of everything he said up to this point, the correct use of speech can be a healing agent and we should strive to use our speech in that way. And so James is going to give us three big ways that we can use our speech beautifully and well and bring life. Again, I told you these are three sermons disguised as three points, so let's jump in. James 5, verse 12 to 20. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and, if the, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So let's dive in. Verse 12 is one point. Verse 13 to 18 is point two. And verse 19 to 20 is point three. So point one is this. Above all, use speech for truthfulness. Above all, use speech for truthfulness. In the Old Testament, there are two instructions about oaths. Now notice he mentions here specifically about not swearing or taking oaths. There are two instructions. First instruction we're going to learn in the Bible about oaths is they are actually encouraged. They're encouraged. Deuteronomy 10, 20, Jeremiah 12, 16, just a couple of examples. Oaths were encouraged. The double-edged nature of that sword is, however, that they were not to take them if they didn't intend to keep them. So the encouragement is if you make an oath, you need to keep it. Leviticus 19, Numbers 30, Deuteronomy 23. Vows, taking oaths, were part of a holy life. They were to be taken and kept. 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul calls on God as his witness. Taking an oath in the name of the Lord, God is my witness. As to the truthfulness of what he is speaking. So oaths are not evil. The problem for these folks that Jesus addresses because Jesus is James' brother and James is going to quote from Jesus here in verse 12, his big brother, about this issue. The problem is over time, the use of oaths degraded like other good practices have a tendency to do into something sinful. Oaths are not innately sinful. The problem is humans in corrupt speech take oaths and vows and begin to degrade them into something sinful. Here's a little statement for you from Kent Hughes in summary of verse 12 that I think is very helpful, so I want to share it with you. He says, in effect, the swearing of oaths had degraded or degenerated to a system, the results of which were disgraceful. There was an undying epidemic of frivolous swearing. Oaths were continually mingled with everyday speech, such as, by your life or by my beard. Or may I never see the comfort of Israel if. So there was a trivialization of everyday language and a devaluation of integrity. Evasive swearing became a fine art. Meaning people's integrity had degraded to the point of needing to prop up their words with trivialized oath takings. Does that make sense? So they weren't truthful in order to try to prove themselves truthful by my beard, I promise you so that people would take them seriously. Jesus addresses this breakdown of the practice of proper oath-taking in Matthew 23, 16-22. Now remember, James is Jesus' little brother. So James is quoting from Jesus here, particularly Matthew 5, 33-37 is where he quotes verse 12 from. But listen to Jesus in Matthew 23 and his speaking woes to the Pharisees about how they have used these oaths which is how these people are using oaths, which is why James is addressing them about truthful speech. Listen to Jesus in verse 16 of Matthew 23. <coughs> Woe to you, 
blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? And he goes on to continue to address it. Meaning people had taken oaths and turned it into something and turned them into something that was awful and sinful and they had lost their effect. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, to 37, just simply let your yes mean what it means and let your no mean what it means. So James quotes Jesus here from Matthew 5 in order to address how these Christians were addressing, with each, addressing each other and how they needed to speak with truthfulness. So the question is, what's the instruction here? What, what's the point? Are we to shun oath-taking? Was Jesus telling us we should never take an oath? What's James instructing? What's the heart of what Jesus is teaching that James is now instructing them on? Here it is. Jesus and James take us to the heart of oaths. And that is the oath should represent a truthful yes or no of the heart. A truthful yes or the no of the heart. In other words, our oaths are only as good as the actual truthfulness of our speech. Does that make sense? The oath is only as good as the actual truthfulness of our speech. Oath-taking for these guys had become what Jesus addressed in Matthew 23 and in Matthew 5. A way that they were trying to cover up for their untruthful speech. James is calling these disciples to a life of truthfulness in the right use of the tongue that supersedes taking oaths to prove their truthfulness. In other words, they needed to reset back to an integrous place in which their no meant no and their yes meant yes. They needed to just speak truthfully, transparently, and honestly. Let me give you an illustration. My junior year of high school, I had uh, an accident on a two-wheeled motorized vehicle. Now, I'm saying it that way because some of y'all know this story. And Joseph Colston, who was our student minister for 10 years and worked for, has worked for me forever, and I was one of his college professors a long time ago, and he's now jagging the Army. You guys know Joseph? Joseph's my favorite people in, in the world. Joseph knew that story, and he knows me cold, and so there's nothing I can get away with around Joseph. So if someone asked me about my knee and they saw, saw the scar on my knee or whatever, they would ask me, what happened? I said, well, I had a motorcycle accident. And I could hear Joseph. If he was close by, I could feel him looking at me. And if he were across the room and heard motorcycle, here's what he would say out loud. It was a scooter. I'm like, ugh. And the truth of the matter is, it was a scooter. And it was my friend Brian Trott's sister's scooter. Jennifer Trott had a little tiny Honda scooter. I grew up on motorcycles. I got my first motorcycle when I was 50, or 50, when I was five years old. I'm not 50 yet. I was five years old. My dad bought me my first little Honda, 50. If you grew up in the late 70s, you grew up in the 70s, 80s, Hondas that had the little fat tires on them. It was a Honda 50. That thing was awesome. My first motorcycle. And so, love motorcycles. And so me and Brian hop on his sister Jennifer's little scooter and we decided to have a little fun. And that ended up in a couple of knee surgeries. But it doesn't sound cool. There was nothing cool we did. There was no really cool. I mean, the accident was horrible. But we weren't doing anything cool. We were just being, just riding. It was stupid. And it was on the girl's scooter. And so when a guy tells a story about his knee from a scooter accident, it's better to say motorcycle from your own just 
desire to make yourself look better. Joseph would never let me say motorcycle. And to this day, if somebody asks me about that story, I hear Joseph in the back of my head going, Scooter! Now, that's kind of a silly little thing. It's a two-wheeled motorized vehicle. But the truth of the matter is, when I say motorcycle, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, oh, maybe like a, you know, like a, an XR200, like Honda or something, or a road bike, a BMW road bike or something cool, right? No, no, no. It's a girl scooter, right? Now, as silly as that little story is, down in my heart, I don't want you to think less of me. And I've told you guys before in the past couple months, one of my greatest Achilles heels is your perception of me counts more than God's perception of me. I fear man more than I fear God. And that's a problem. And so I don't want you to think I wrecked on a girl's scooter as if somehow you care. But that shows you how the human heart is affected by sin and our perceptions of things so that in something as trivial and silly as that, I don't want you to think less of me because I wrecked on Jennifer Trott's scooter. Not my own cool motorcycle, right? And so, and so just in this silly little example, what James is calling them to is that kind of truthfulness. And as trivial as it sounds, it points down into the depths of the human heart that has trouble. And James wants them to be truthful with each other. He wants them to be able to speak to one another. And that's going to lead us into the next section in a moment when he talks about confession of sin. He wants us to be able to speak what is real with each other. And here are a few examples. Real truthfulness, not examples, but some ways you can practice this. Real truthfulness is rooted in our integrity and doesn't need to prove itself with oaths. Real truthfulness is rooted in our integrity and doesn't need to prove itself with oaths, meaning we live integrous lives. We tell the truth. Real truthfulness is not afraid of being who we really are in Christ. Real truthfulness isn't afraid of being who we really are. It's not having to live up to some cultural idea of manhood or womanhood that is produced from the outside looking in. It's being who God has made you in Jesus Christ, as redeemed as you can possibly live under the power of the Holy Spirit obeying the Scriptures. It's not afraid of being who we really are in Christ. Real truthfulness doesn't have to embellish our experiences. Real truth doesn't have to make it sound like something greater or something lesser. Real truthfulness is humble and quiet. It doesn't need to draw a crowd or defend itself because we know that God knows and we don't have to prove anything with an oath or self-defense. It's just quiet and humble. When everything inside of you wants to scream from the mountaintop facts, real truthfulness is just quiet and humble and trusting because we know God knows. And we don't have to prove anything with an oath or self-defense. Real truthfulness can be honest about our needs and how we are really doing. Southern gentility is a cancer to the Christian life. And I'm a son of it. How's your mom and them? Right? Anybody eat mom and M's growing up? How's your mom and M? Oh, mom and M's good. How's your mom and M? Right? We're good, good, good. And we're like, good, good, good. Smiling. And inside, we are wasting away and crying in our hearts. Because there is something about telling the truth about how we are that is debilitating the human pride. And we would rather people think more of us than God think highly of us by just not being truthful. 
Real truthfulness can be honest about our needs and how we're really doing. I'm trying to practice that more. How you doing? I'm okay. I mean, I'm upright. But if I'm not good, I'm not going to tell you I'm good. And if I need to cry, you may see tears. And you need to do the same thing. We all need to do the same thing because that's the reality maybe of what's going on in us. Real truthfulness does not have to cover up how we really are. We can take the mom and ms and throw them away. It's okay to ask how's your mom and them, but if mom and them ain't good, you can say they're not good. They need your prayers. Right? Real truthfulness can be honest. So he's calling these people to a life of honesty that supersedes degenerate oath-taking. Again, oath-taking, not evil. It's just built upon a real truthfulness. Point number two, verse 13 to 18. Above all, use our speech for lives of worship. Above all, use our speech for lives of worship. I say here, lives of worship, because James here mingles praise and prayer for one another and confession of sin all together as right uses of speech. And the reason I like and I've chosen to say use our speech for lives of worship is because Romans 12, 1 and 2 teach us that worship is more than the songs we sing, it's the life we live. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your worship. So what James is describing here in this beautifully right use of human speech is using it in a way that worships God in how we do life together. So above all, use our speech for lives of worship. So how does James instruct us on living a life of worship together, particularly verse 13 to 18? He's going to give us Three items. Now, these three items are under point number two. There's point number one, there's point number two, which we're on now, and then there are three items underneath that that James is going to unpack for us. Number one, prayer and suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James instructs the person suffering to pray. That should be a no-brainer. You read over that and go, duh. But how many of us, when we're suffering, actually stop and devote time to prayer? I would argue that it's much easier to begin to divert our attention to self-delivery rather than biblical prayer. And for a lot of us, self-delivery is easy. We can deliver ourselves. We can use our words. We can use our actions. We can do a hundred things that deliver us without having to trust the Lord without having to depend on Him, without having to stop and rest and Sabbath and wait on the Lord. And James says, if you're suffering, pray. Pray. When he says pray, he means pray like the Bible teaches us to pray. Meaning, Matthew 6, examples of Jesus' prayers, example of Paul's prayers, all these prayers in the Bible, the Psalms, loaded with prayers. Pray like that. Prayer is a discipline we have to learn by practicing. Prayer is often associated in the Bible with fasting. They go together, meaning sometimes we pray and sometimes we do without things as we add prayer in order to address the situation because in prayer we find God does amazing things. We learn here in the rest of this passage 
that the prayer of righteous people has great power and is working. And he gives the example of Elijah, who's just like us. And God sent him on a mission, and God told him what to pray. He prayed it, and it didn't rain. Why? Because God answers holy prayers of holy people. And they are powerful, and they work. Isn't that amazing? So if you're suffering, pray. Why? Because prayer may be, likely is, the most effective means of addressing the situation. If you're suffering, pray. We can assume in that also that we should pray for one another in our suffering. He doesn't say it explicitly, but I think you can assume that if we're being honest and truthful and transparent, we have truthful speech, and we're suffering, we can tell our friends we're suffering and we should pray for one another in that suffering. Maybe we fast and pray for each other. Maybe we do without certain things for each other and call on the Lord to rescue and deliver. And we wait on Him until He does. Prayer and suffering. Number two, praise from a cheerful heart. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Praise from a cheerful heart. Don't you love it when you're around someone who God has given a cheerful heart and they just break out in song or they're humming or whistling something? That's good. It's holy. It's life-giving. Just have a cheerful heart. Sing. One of the greatest things you can do in your commuting on a daily basis is turn on the radio, find some decent worship music, and sing it. Sing to the Lord in your vehicle while you're going from point A to point B. And guess what? There are good songs that aren't Christian songs that are worth singing because they're happy. They're joyful. Sing them. God is the author of cheerful hearts. And it's okay to pursue cheerfulness in Christ. It's okay to pursue happiness in Christ. And if you have a cheerful heart... And there's a cheerful song, sing it. And it's one of God's good means of using human speech and human language, the tongue, to bless and do good. Which is one of the reasons God ordained praise. That's why we have 150 songs in the middle of our Bible that they sung. Which is why Christians take that model and we sing in our worship services because it's a proper use of human speech to sing. And by the way, sometimes the singing comes from a cheerful heart and sometimes the singing comes from a hurting heart. And that's okay too because we get psalms that David wrote from the very bottom of the dregs of his difficult experiences and he wasn't afraid to sing those songs to the Lord. Neither should we be afraid. Human speech can be used in beautiful life-giving ways. Cheerful heart, sing. The third way is a most challenging thing. Healing prayer and confession of sin. Healing prayer and confession of sin. I put a little note here. You can see it in the notes that I provided for you. This instruction from James is different for a lot of us. And it's a foreign idea to many of us, and perhaps foreign even in practice. I've done this one time in 20 years of ministry. 
about 20 years, Three Rivers, and mm, Rome, Georgia, Texas, around 25 years of ministry. I've done this one time. So it's foreign to us. We just don't read James and go, hmm, let me do that. But James gives us here one of the proper ways to use human speech, to use the tongue for good things, is healing prayer and confession of sin. And they go together. I didn't separate them because they go together. This is nobody's fault but our own. For A, you're priests of God. Right? We're all priests of the Lord. We believe in the priesthood of the believers. Nobody in this room, if you're in Christ, you believe the gospel, you repented of your sin, you've come to Jesus, He's put your whole, His Holy Spirit in you, you're a priest of God. I'm no more priest than you're a priest. Okay? You understand that? Believe that? Right? So you have a Bible. You can practice it. But I have a Bible too. And we just haven't taught it. We haven't preached through James before. Just nobody's fault but our own for not teaching it and learning to walk supernaturally with the Holy Spirit and receive from the Lord some of the good things the Father may have for us. So let me read it, and let's try to unpack it. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. So let me give you a rundown here. The sick person is the one who should take the initiative and call for the elders to pray over them. So it's not the elder's job to take the initiative to go take oil. And by the way, the oil here is symbolic. The oil is symbolic, and it represents the Holy Spirit, right? So it's just simply symbolic. And by the way, just so you know, every time I go to the hospital, and every time I go visit somebody, I take a bottle, a little vial of oil with me just in case, a little little secret. I do, I got it, just in case. Somebody's read their Bible. I'm not going to offer it. It says it's your responsibility, and there's a reason for that. Because connected to that, asking for prayer is the need to also be transparent and truthful about sin. I can't drag that out of people. you got to offer it. Ouch! Right? It wasn't a scooter. I mean, it, it wasn't a motorcycle. It was a scooter. It was Jennifer Trott's scooter. Right? And so... The sick person should take the initiative to call for the elders to pray over them. The elders are to anoint the sick person with oil as symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, just so you know, if you want to go consult a ton of commentaries, you're welcome to. You'll find multiple takes on this. I'm going to give you mine. Okay? And so it's arguable. Alright? So just go study it. Alright? But here you go. So the elders are anoint the sick person with oil as symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then the elders and the sick person and any family members pray for healing. And the Lord may give supernatural faith to believe that there will be healing and they are to offer that prayer in supernatural faith. And he says here that prayer will save, it will heal the sick person. Now, I would have loved it had James just simply said the prayer of faith might heal them. That would be a little simpler to deal with, right? He didn't say might, he said will 
Which is why there's an understanding here that this prayer of faith is not just a normal prayer from believing people who have faith. The idea here is that the elders gather because the sick person said, hey, I want you to come and anoint me with oil. And they come, and they anoint, and they wait because they need to ask some questions. Is there sin? And you wait. And you wait on the Lord perhaps to give supernatural faith specifically that this healing will take place if you ask for it. The one time I practiced this, God didn't give that. This person was schooled in James and said, I would love for you to come and pray. And there are some things I need to confess. And we'll wait on the Lord. They actually taught me how to do it. And we waited. And none of us ever received any supernatural idea that our prayer would be effective in the healing of this cancer. But we prayed anyway. We asked the Lord for grace and mercy. We asked the Lord for help. We asked for healing. The Lord didn't heal. So we came to the conclusion that the Lord didn't grant us a supernatural faith that this healing would take place. But that doesn't mean we still don't ask for healing. It just simply means that there are some things in our truthful communication with each other and with God we need to practice. That is this transparency of being able to come to one another and say, I'm sick, I need help, I'm suffering, pray for me. Let's pray for healing. I want to tell you everything. I want to make sure you know somebody knows these things and let's wait on the Lord. This is foreign to us. One of the reasons I believe this is foreign to us is because we live in a microwave world that just doesn't want to wait. And sometimes the supernatural work of God requires us to wait a little bit. It requires some longevity in trusting the Lord. It requires some fasting. It requires being quiet, being still. We find in this instance the Lord might give supernatural faith to believe for healing. In which instance we will pray for that. I don't know if you've ever experienced moments where God gave you supernatural faith to believe something. I hope you have. I hope you have. I hope you live a life that requires you to trust the Lord like that. On two occasions I've been in places, difficult places around the world where the Lord's instruction was clear we were to do something. I didn't want to do it because of the danger involved, because it involved me possibly not going home. Just be honest. Like, I want to go home. i got a wife and kids. I do not want to die. And I don't want to die like that. I have some preferred ways I want to go. And these ways that might happen with this were not in my preferred ways of going. So I didn't want to go. I didn't want to do it. And I was fighting against it. I was like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. And I was like, oh, no, we need to go. Let's pray. And I know, no, no, let's don't pray. God might answer negatively. No, let's don't pray. And I gave in because I didn't want to look like the unspiritual one. And we prayed. And you know what God did? Go. I will be with you. Dang it. And you know what? There was this overwhelming sense of calm and rest and peace that it was going to be okay. And it went away. And I was like, heck yeah, let's go. And you know what God did? He blessed. Right? That, that for me was a, a learning moment to know the difference when I believe in Jesus, which is also supernatural. And that, hey, I think we're supposed to do this and it's going to be okay, which is supernatural. 
And listen, I just want to, if that's foreign to you, and I think it probably is for many of us, learn to live life in a manner that you can't deliver yourself and only God can do it. And you will find those moments of supernatural faith where the Lord just sets His calm and His peace down. And you know by Holy Spirit what you're supposed to do. And listen, guys, there's no way to teach that apart from experience other than here it is in the Bible. Here's what God's Word says. And this is what we are to do with it. But He teaches us here that prayer for healing needs to be accompanied by confession of and repentance of sin in case sin is the cause of the sickness. Now this gets a little sticky for us because we want to jump to John 9 very quickly. Forgetting the fact that sin may actually create sickness. In John 9, Jesus is addressing the assumption the Pharisees had that the man born blind was blind because of his parents' sin or something he himself did when in fact it was not. Jesus isn't discounting the fact that sin causes sickness. He's just rejecting it in that specific instance. How do we know this? Because the rest of the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 11 lets us know that there are people in Corinth who are sick and dead because of the improper taking of the Lord's Supper. Jesus said to the paralytic at Bethesda in John 5.14, He healed him and he found him later and he told him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 1 John 5, 16-17 says, If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death and I don't say you should pray for that. Wow. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Sin may actually cause sickness. But sickness isn't necessarily an indicator of present sin, which means this instance in James requires discernment and waiting on the Lord. Listening. Requires discernment. Discernment is also something we're not used to practicing. I want black and white. I want the Lord to cause a, a hand to, to show up on the wall. Like in Daniel, many, many tekel and parson. Yes, got it. Gone. Do it, right? That's what I want. And often the Lord doesn't do it that way. The Lord does things by Holy Spirit that requires us to listen, know His Word, be in community and accountability so together we can affirm and understand what God is doing. So it requires discernment. Meaning the person who is sick needs to be transparent, practice truthful speech. And if there's anything hiding there, confession needs to happen. Confession of sin is an often unpracticed discipline in the life of Christians. Not confession to God, yes, that's assumed, but confession to one another. There's nothing quite so liberating as being able to speak to a brother or sister and say, you know what, there's some things I need to tell you. And it doesn't have to be big stuff. It's little stuff because the truth of the matter is Holy Spirit likes to clean us up and make us holy. And it's simple things such as it was Jennifer's trot scooter, not a motorcycle. 
And as silly as that is for some of you, it is kind of a funny story. It matters to me that I tell that truth because inside of me, I don't want you to think less of me for wrecking on a girl's scooter. How stupid is that? But for me and my goofy little heart, that matters for some stupid reason. And I need to be honest with you about that, right? And so, and so we confess even the little things because it matters, and the Bible says to do it. It makes us uncomfortable in the genteel South, doesn't it? How's your mom and them? Good? How are you? Good? And, and we never ask, is there anything you need to say? Is there anything you need to tell? No, we don't ask that question, right? But we may find in there liberty. Why do we engage like this? Why should we do this? Well, he tells us, because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Listen, y'all. Listen. If ever there was a time in Christian history, the West, the church in the West needed to know the supernatural power of God, I, I believe it's now, as much as it ever has been, that we would know how to live and engage in our world because we are people who pray, we seek the Lord, we receive His instruction, not the news, not Twitter, not Facebook, not Instachat, not whatever, not, not the snapbook, whatever you use. I know there's no such thing as snapbook. I'm totally like confused now. But you, my point, whatever your platform is, we're inundated with stuff. And we want to bring it in here and then expect everybody to think like me. Which creates all manner of problem. And if there's ever a time when you be people of prayer who hear the Holy Spirit together in fellowship, it is now. We engage like this because prayer is powerful in righteous people and it has great effect. But it's important to note that prayer here, the flip side of that coin is prayer from people living in sin doesn't have effect. There's no promise that if I'm not clean before you, I'm in Christ and in Christ I'm forgiven. But that forgiveness is also worked out with each other in fellowship. And if there is sin I keep hidden, my prayers do not have effect. So we engage like this because it is a right use of the human tongue. It's a gloriously beautiful use. And you know what's interesting? This shows how the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light butt up against each other. You feel the tension in the room? You feel it? James is instructing us on good uses of it. This is good. This is right. This isn't supposed to be heavy. This is light. This is good. There's healing and good here. And we hear it and we go boom. 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 I think it's because we worship our own self-image more than we worship the Lord of the universe. I don't want you to think less of me, so I'll keep that hidden. And listen, the flip side of that coin is you don't make stuff up either to look spiritual. If you hadn't sinned, there ain't nothing you need to say, right? Does that make sense? You don't start making stuff up just to look like God's delivered you from all this great stuff. Man, I used to be this, and I was that, and I did all this and did all that, and I've prayed, and God took it away if it's not true. Does that make sense? You don't make sin up and you don't confess sin you haven't committed just to look spiritual. Does that make sense? Right? Because that's not verse 12. That's not being truthful in our speech. You tracking? 
It's transparency. It's honesty. Being truthful. If you hadn't sinned, don't apologize. If you hadn't done anything wrong, don't say you're sorry. That make sense? That's false humility, and God's not going to honor that either. It's transparency. It's truthfulness. And he says this is good. This is a good use of the tongue. Verse 19 to 20, last point. Oh, my Lord, it's 11 o'clock. I told you it would be long, but I won't teach you because you're going to talk about this in your radical life group. I'm going to give you all the information. I'll go quickly. Here we go. We're almost done. Above all, use our speech for recovery from spiritual shipwreck. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, wanders is a word that we get our word planet from. That's interesting. It's the idea of leaving the mooring of the truth and going off to nowhere good brings him back as one word and it means to cause a person to change their belief. If anybody is wandering and someone yanks them back into the orbit, the gravitational pull of the kingdom of God, he says, whoever does that brings a sinner back from their wandering and saves their soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. People can wander and shipwreck their faith which will lead to death and destruction. It's possible for a person whose faith is constructed on faulty grounds, on a lack of transparency, on an exaltation of human flesh and human work, and cause those faulty grounds gospel to walk away from that shifting sand. Because that's not faith. See Hebrews chapter 6. And we can... We can because life and death are in the power of the tongue because God has given us right, beautiful ways to use human speech. We can use our speech for spiritual recovery to help a person wandering from the truth to change their beliefs and actions and come back in line with God's Word. The if he uses here, and he uses the word if, introduces possibility, meaning it's possible, but it's also truthful that it might not correct their course. It's possible, but it might not have the effect we desire. It's important to note here, this is not a command. It's one of the beautiful uses of the tongue. It's possible, but it might not always correct the course of action because verse 12 is in play, in which I need to be brutally, honestly transparent and truthful in order to receive instruction from you, and vice versa. We can use our words and our logic and reason, all constructed on God's Word, to do our best to snatch people from wandering from the truth and the fires of destruction. But as Galatians 6.1 reminds us, be careful in doing that, that you don't get caught up in sinning also. Spiritual recovery in life and the justification of sin is a beautiful use of the tongue and can be employed in the life of the fellowship. So here's how we close up. Why can we use our speech in redemptive ways? Why can we do that? Because it's beautiful three ways we can use the tongue redemptively. It's because Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Genesis chapter 3, sin is introduced into created order and everything broke. Everything broke. Lies are introduced. Covering up is introduced. Death is introduced. And God, by His Word, restrains and heals and begins to make right. And Jesus has come, and He's broken the curse of sin in His gospel work.
He came. He lived perfectly, sinlessly. He goes to the cross as the sacrifice of the Father to pay for your sin and mine. He's buried. On the third day, He rises and He ascends to the right hand of the Father to complete salvation for all who believes. The curse of sin is broken. The kingdom of God has come and it is coming in its fullness at a later date in time. But the power of God is present to break the curse of sin. How can we use speech redemptively? Because Jesus has come, His kingdom is here, and His word is powerful. And if we will employ it, beautiful things can happen. Jesus purchased for us all the good we can possibly store up if we will simply access it according to His Word. Let's pray and let's worship. Let's sing with hearts that long to worship Jesus. Father, in Jesus' name we pray that you would cause your word to be a lamp for our feet, light for our path, and we would hide it deep in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your supernatural work of counseling, walking along beside, and reminding us of everything you have spoken. Your authoritative, powerful voice, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that it be unmistakable in that fatherly, powerful way in which you do speak and change and transform. Pray, Father, for a heavy heart that you would lift it up. For a cheerful heart, you would give it voice and song. For in-between hearts, that you would give voice and song. For truthfulness, transparency, for healing, for confession of sin and for restoration. Would you do those glorious things this morning? As we sing to you, would you be exalted, be glorified, and be lifted high? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.